Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm so excited um, to welcome someone uh, who we've had on the podcast before, um, Sister Laura Swan. Welcome, uh, Sister Swan. Thank you. Good to be here. Just call me Sister Laura. Okay. Sister yeah. Laura. For those who don't know who you are, just give them a little background. Oh, wow. Um, I'm a Benedictine nun out in the Pacific Northwest. I live in a monastery about an hour south of Seattle. And my passion really has been about uh, the voices that don't normally get included in histories and uh, that are published and stories that we tell, uh, and particularly of women. And um, the Forgotten Desert Mothers was my very first project of reclaiming the stories that um, some scholars know but very rarely talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have the book here, uh, The Forgotten Desert Mothers. Uh, so I encourage you all to go uh, get that as a, a helpful resource. And we're going to be talking about this book today, um, The Early um, Church Mothers. Um, and I think this is important because a lot of times we talk about the early church, especially in Africa, early African church fathers like Tertullian, Augustine, um, Athanasius, but we don't necessarily highlight um, the women um, in those same spaces. So, um, and, and each of the men you just mentioned had a circle of women who were major supporters of their ministry and had a ministry of their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, tell us about how uh, the women in the early um, Africa and churches supported uh, the men during that time. Uh, in some cases, uh, these women were independently wealthy or they were very gifted business women. And so they literally financed uh, their living expenses, their traveling expenses, uh, but they also oftentimes traveled with them in their missionary work, preaching and teaching right alongside the guys. Mm-hmm. And that, go ahead. No, you could go ahead. Like Augustine had a lot of women in his uh, home monastery at his cathedral uh, in Hippo. Mm-hmm. And that's helpful because when we think oftentimes about uh, women during that time, we think of, uh, women being dependent 
on men and 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 really you're saying that ministry was really kind of held together by the women being a financial resource um and yes, savvy business women can you talk about um some of the savvy business women during that time oh um paula macrina marcella um i don't have my list here with me but these were women who um were either inherited wealth or managed the estates of their families, but they utilized their wealth to establish home churches, uh, monastic communities, to fund missionary um, missionary endeavors. But they also oftentimes then arranged for others to manage their estates, and they went off and went on their own missionary endeavors on their own. Women tended, as part of their missionary work, to also establish monastic communities, which would be men and women, and usually children being raised alongside, uh, because it, it created a foundation for um, cultivating Christian culture and education and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? I, I know in, in I know in um, chapter five you talk about the deaconesses of yeah. the church. Um, can you share a little bit about them for us? Yeah, deacons, you know, originally the term was um, gender neutral. Uh, men and women referred to as deacons. And these were the women, people who were appointed to uh, take in the alms and redistribute to prisons, uh, to uh, widows who were destitute, to orphans, um, sometimes for the building of churches, but it was really more about building up of people. And women were deacons right alongside of men. They, they also assisted at baptism because baptism was usually by full immersion and usually you were stark naked and it was not considered appropriate in Christian circles for guys to get in there, you know, at least not, not without a woman alongside it, the women were being baptized. Um, and there's some great stories about, you know, going in and people and oil and then they lose the grip on the person and they, I mean, so the stories are also funny, you know, slip and fall into the pool or to uh, wherever they're uh, being baptized. Um, so it was serious, and there was a humorous side to it as well. Uh, but it's about 325.50 that we start seeing um, deacon and deaconess. It starts becoming gender-specific, but the ministry still equals side-by-side side the same. Um, now, you, you start off, you talk about the sayings of the Desert Mothers. One, you talked about Ama Matrona. Um mm-hmm. Can you just share a little bit about her life uh, and Ama Sarah? Uh, because yeah. most people know uh, Perpetual and Felicity, uh, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the extent of their knowledge of early church women. Yeah, the great martyrs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with unfortunately, with our major Amas, Sarah, Sincletica, Theodora, Matrona, we know they lived in the 300s and probably three, you know, 300 to 350 or 60, um, but we actually don't know anything about their life. It's only their sayings that survived. And there were probably many, many more women whose teachings were preserved, but libraries get burned and people die. And, you know, so we've lost a lot of uh, the memory of these women, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. That's why I worked so hard to scrape, scoop together whatever I could find uh, that survived. Mm-hmm. You say something um, on page 34, you say our Western and postmodern minds may find these they're saying they exalt suffering and show a sus- suspicious attitude toward the human body and reject yeah. sexuality. Um, why did you um, uh, feel it important to note that how we view their words may be harsh to us in the West? 
uh, because of that very, it can come across as if they're very suspicious of the human body. And the reality is that the goal was to become like the angels. And so many of our stories of the early women, uh, they cropped their hair like guys, they put on the robes of guys, and they tried to live genderless, trying to become more like the angels. And today we understand, you know, our human body is a gift from God. Our sexuality is a gift from God. Um, hopefully we are not going around wearing hair shirts and doing all sorts of unmentionable things we used to do in uh, early and medieval times. Um, I think living well is enough of an asceticism. Um, but really their goal was purity of heart. Their goal was singular, uh, singular pursuit of God, um, which is partly why they left urban areas as much as they could was to um, focus more intently on that one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, literally to become like fire, the passion of God, the power of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's helpful. Highlight for us some of the women that we should know from this time uh, and, and share a little bit of their, their stories. From I know you said some that you don't have a lot uh, from, but those mm -hmm. who you do. Sure. Um, I think a couple of my favorites is Olympias, who was a deacon in um, what is now Istanbul, then Constantinople. Uh, she had a monastery of 250 to 300 women. Um, they went out and served the poor in their area. They were preaching. They were teaching. She was a major uh, supporter of John Chrysostom, who was publicly condemning the corrupt lifestyle of the imperial family. So he got driven out of Constantinople and she kept supporting him while he was on the run, both financially as well as, uh, you know, as a friend emotionally and uh, spiritually. She was actually one of the wealthiest women in the Roman Empire. Um, she could be the equivalent of Melinda Gates, literally. And she, uh, but she gave her money away responsibly. She didn't just, you know, throw it to the wind. So she was very intentional about um, supporting uh, orphans and widows, of uh, establishing churches, of supporting missionaries in their work. So she's very careful about how she gave her wealth away, but she did. Uh, and she was a deaconess, as so she's one of the first referred to in the specifically female gender. Um, and so were uh, three or four other women in her monastery, for sure we know, were also ordained deacons and seemed to have carried on a major ministry. And her main ministry seemed to be supporting John Chrysostom's teachings condemning the corruption of the um, Roman Empire. I also love Maria the harp player. Uh, Maria had been a liturgical musician in Jerusalem and eventually felt the call to, to the desert. Again, that idea of going deep within and establishing a deep relationship with the divine. And so she moved out into the desert between Jerusalem and Jericho and moved into one of the caves there. And the histories talk about monks and, you know, people moving, uh, walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, a major highway, and hearing your heart playing seven times a day. That's, they prayed the offices seven times a day, which is the Psalms and, you know, uh, uh, portions of scripture. And then all of a sudden they started realizing they weren't hearing her anymore after many years. And so an abbot of some small community sent two guys in to try find her because they knew where her cave was. And they found that she had died. And so she, they wrapped her in her robes dug a grave right within her cell and buried her with her harp. And she had just been remembered very fondly in the church because of her harp playing and uh, chanting way off in the desert. Sound carries really well in a desert. So she could have been uh, two and three miles away and they still would have heard her because the music would have bounced off the uh, walls of the caves and the cliffs. Mm -hmm. 
that's that's those are helpful uh stories for us i think because we don't we hear like john christendom we don't think about uh the women that supported his ministry or how he would do ministry had it not been for um the woman you named uh one Mm -hmm. of the things i remember we talked about in the first um conversation we had was the emphasis on prayer that the Mm -hmm. women had and um can you share a little bit about that Yeah, and I think it really applies to us today as well. There was a tradition in the early church that the most important prayer were these at least morning and evening office. This was something that we inherited from the Jewish community. So it was praying psalms and scriptures and um, sitting quietly, um, reading some of the sacred texts or listening to it being heard because you didn't actually read silently. In that time, even if you were all alone, you were still reading out loud. They didn't have that concept of a silent reading. Um, but what they teach for us is um, that prayer is not just something we do in the morning and the evening when we sit down to an intentional prayer time. Um, they talk about cultivating a constant prayer, a constant awareness of God. So while they're working, they were all, unless they were independently wealthy, they were all self-supporting. Uh, and even the ones who were independently wealthy were. So they'd be um, I know it can be a joke, but making baskets was actually, or weaving rope was actually considered a major uh, economic endeavor back then. And uh, they would be doing their work with their hands while reciting the, the entire Bible. They actually memorized it in the Hebrew and in the Greek um, so that they can constantly re-remember God. Um, and the idea was to grow within. I sometimes talk about the spiritual journey being, you know, uh, three feet long, but five miles deep. It's to go within and not look for something out. But they were also mindful of the poor. You know, when they'd go into the villages to sell their wares and buy their supplies, the first 10% went to the local deacon uh, to redistribute to the poor. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And I, I know we talked to last time, too, about kind of the incarnational approach they had yeah. um, in ministry. And so we... Uh, literally being christ to people yeah um but and also showing that there was you know there is obviously tension during this time with the oh, company, yes. uh with doctrine and how the women kind of brought the balance of um how to engage people um in a way that kind of demonstrated what first peter says in three fifth with gentleness and respect yeah. um can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, the, we part of the reason we know some of these women is because of what that big term you and I learned in graduate school, uh, Christological controversies. How could Jesus be fully human and fully divine? And that was not a Jewish problem. That was a Greek problem. The Greeks loved to split hairs on everything, and they thought they needed to understand it before they'd believe it. And the desert Amas and Abbas um, would come into the village and... Um, they basically preached in support of Athanasius's position that Jesus is fully human, fully divine. God is fully present in our world um, and rejecting these other takes on, well, Jesus is, you know, a superhuman, but not God or Jesus is God, but he only appeared to be human. And so the incarnation, the fleshliness of God becoming human uh, was very, very important to them. Um, and it was a way that they could relate to people who were not well educated. You know, you got to, you don't want to down talk to people, but you got to keep things real. And the incarnation for them was a way to talk, talking about that was a way to keep Jesus real 
to the people who were considering becoming Christians or uh, were being uh, taught in their faith. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about the prophetic voice, uh, mm -hmm. the prophetic freedom in, in your book. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the prophets have never died. You know that. Every generation has its group of prophets and usually the ones that we don't like. We prefer our prophets dead, not alive. Uh, but, you know, picking, well, we do, we, you know, we're picking up from um, the Tanakh Old Testament, you know, these uh, desert ascetics really um, try to help people understand that they could step away from the trappings of the Roman Empire and its culture, its politics, um, its death, def you know, so much dying, so much sickness in the Roman Empire, that people could step away from that and, um be a prophetic voice to the world. You know, the prophet, as you probably know, is the uh, is someone who gives voice to God's pain, anguish, and despair. And then at the same time, the Amas were saying, and this is how you make the journey away from that. Um, and so they model for us today that call to be in the world, but not of the world, and to be a prophetic voice uh, to the things that are going on around us. That's, that's helpful. What other things that you think we should know from from your book that uh, for our audience? Um, what, the call to simplicity, um, both and probably more interior rather than exterior, but exterior as well, um, that the Amas and Abbas call us to be really intentional about what we are about, um, that it's about faith, a relationship with Jesus, a relationship with one another as children of God, and it's not so much about institutional church and governance and power. You know, I always tell my students, follow the power and follow the money. Um, I think the Amas and Abbas, again, call us today to speak the truth to power. Um, I think the Amas and Abbas, again, to, are calling us back to our the fullness of our humanity, um, which is not about our stuff, our status, or whatever else, but who God has called us to be, who God created us to be. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you come from. It doesn't matter your education level. Um, it doesn't matter um, who other people think you are. It's you yourself before God and to follow that call, to follow that lead. And people will do small things and big things. And we will touch people's lives in ways that we don't even know. Most of these Amas, there's absolutely no evidence that they thought anyone else other than their immediate followers would ever know that they had ever existed. Um, but here they are speaking to us 2,000 years later. Um, it was their call to simplicity that first attracted me. And it was the Desert Fathers I met first. And then I got a little angry because I knew there had to have been women out there. So that's when I went in pursuit of them. Um, so don't buy into societal norms. <clears throat> and listen to the prophets. You know, listen to the prophetic voices of today. And if they disturb you, that's really good. And the gospel should be disturbing us. If we pasteurize it and sanitize it, not good. Mm -hmm. There is a human tendency to do that, isn't there? Yes, it is. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um, I've, I I uh, didn't ask you at the beginning because I know people are probably listening. Can you define Amas and Abbas for, for people who have no reference point for that? Because I realize we're, we're talking about it and we didn't define it early on. Sure. Um, <clears throat> desert ascetics, these are people who left Roman society and went out to seek solitude and to step outside of the Roman Empire um, fairly quickly in Coptic um, and the way we translate it into English is 
someone who is considered an elder in the spiritual journey, someone you look up to who has spent years um, intentionally seeking God, seeking wisdom, um, they get its honorific title is Amma for women and Abba for father. And it comes out of Coptic Egypt. Um, and it's still the term that gets used in some of our lesser known Christian communities in the Middle East today. And from that, you know, in the Western Christian tradition will come Abbot and Abbas. Mm-hmm. And the hope is that they are wise leaders. <laughs> and I love how you mentioned that the women would, would memorize the, the scriptures in Hebrew and, and Greek. It shows a robustness to their um, uh, to their to their studies um, that they were theological theologically savvy, just like uh, the the early church fathers. Um, can you speak to that? Because some people will kind of think that women were uh, were illiterate during that uh, were all illiterate during that time and just followed the men, but they they could um, could engage with with the best of them. Oh, absolutely, uh, Jerome, the uh, translator of uh, the scripture into the Vulgate, uh, which was a kind of Latin. Uh, he accredited several of the women, uh, Marcella amongst them, um, as being really good sounding boards as he was working on his translations, that their command of Greek and Hebrew was just as strong as his. Um, women were literate, not all, of course, uh, but we do have literate women, um, not only in Hebrew and Greek, but um, Latin. They Women translated, uh, translated but also... Um, copied manuscripts as a way of making a living as well as to build their own library collection. And it wasn't just uh, the Bible, which of course is our primary document, but histories and um, histories, uh, sermons, uh, letters, they would copy those and send them on down the way. Um, So they were also kind of a roving library, if you want to use that image. Um, Literacy was a little bit different back then than we think of it today. Uh, You might be able to read, but you won't be able to write or you may be able to copy a manuscript, but you won't understand what you're copying because they were a much more oral culture than we are. East Africans still, their brains are wired for oral. Um, we've had Tanzanian sisters here going to school and they're back home. And if they heard an audiobook, they remembered it word for word. If they have to read the book, they slugged their way through because it was their third language. That They're telling us scholars that that's the way it was back then, that um, I would read out loud to you, you know, a, let's say the book of Jeremiah, your brain would imprint that pretty quickly. But to pick up a manuscript and read it would might be a totally different function for you. But Roman society, um, if you were, a, especially at the patrician class, generally women were well-educated. What Christianity did is it freed a lot of women from the lower classes to go in pursuit of an education uh, because they wanted to be able to read these texts for themselves. Mm-hmm. And we know from uh, scholars tell us that um, Women were actually the major force uh, in growing the Christian movement after Jesus died. It was primarily a woman's movement. Mm-hmm. So the the women's movement didn't start uh, <laughs> in the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah never mind the suffragettes from the, from the dead. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a great way to look at it. Um, for those who want to get in contact with you on social media, how can how can they do that? Um, I'm on Facebook, just Laura Swan, um, and it looks my picture sort of looks like me. 
I think so. Um, and I have an email address of lswan at stplacid.org. That's as much as I'm wired up. I don't own a cell phone, um, so I'm not wired up that way. Well, thank you, Sister Laura. This has been a great, um, a great talk, and I encourage everybody to go get her book, uh, The Forgotten Desert Mothers. It is a helpful resource. There's not many uh, books written on um, early, uh, uh, early church uh, mothers. So I think you, you definitely need this in your library, um, especially for not only women but for men. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody needs to read it. Um, so we can know the women who um, undergirded the work um, to help push the gospel forward. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jude3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.